graduation ceremonies are often referred to with the word commencement. And I think that can be a little bit confusing. Because graduations take place at the end of your education, but commencement is a word that has to do with beginning something. And it's confusing enough that a teacher once wrote a note explaining that her students were going to watch a movie of a book at the commencement of their study of the book, which was a little odd because that seems to say that they're going to watch the movie before they read the book. I don't think teachers usually do that. Turns out, no, that's not what she was saying. She was using the word commencement for the end. And probably because the last time she heard the word commencement was at her own graduation and from college. That, it, it's confusing. So why, why do you refer to a graduation as a commencement? Well, who is teaching you when you go to college or university? The person teaching you is somebody who's mastered the subject that, that they're teaching you. Your, your college or math professor, your college or university math professor, they have a degree that says they're authorized to teach you math. That was, that's, that's a very long, there's a very long tradition of, of what happens in our education system. In medieval Europe, at the graduation ceremonies, they would actually have an initiation ceremony too, where the person who was graduating would, would actually give their first lecture as a professor. So at a graduation, you were also commencing your job as a professor. That's why they'd call it a commencement. So here at the end of Matthew, we have a commencement. It's a conclusion to the book, but it's also commencing something. It's, it's basically having these disciples graduate so that they then take up this mantle that Jesus has been doing. They're going to do the very same thing that Jesus had been doing. He'd been making them disciples, and now they're going to commence making the disciples. Now, in Jesus' day, a person would seek out a rabbi, a scribe who was an expert in how to interpret and apply, obey the law. That was the idea of a scribe. And somebody would seek that person out in order to become their disciple, to learn from that person. But their goal wasn't to remain a disciple. The goal of that person was to become a rabbi someday and then take on disciples of their own. But Jesus is not just any rabbi. Jesus is the Messiah. And so when he talks about making disciples and this disciple process, he was doing something different. He made disciples who would never graduate to become rabbis. That's what he said in chapter 23. They weren't allowed to call each other rabbi. Because Jesus said they have one teacher. He would always be their teacher. They would never be teaching their own things. They would always be passing along his instruction. Because Jesus wasn't just giving them information. He wasn't just telling them about himself. He was giving himself. So, though this is really commencement, they were, they're going to make disciples but not exactly the same way as Jesus. They weren't replacing Jesus. They're still going to be his disciples. So at the conclusion here, Matthew 28, which you can turn to, what we have are disciples who will continue to be disciples, but who are now going to make disciples. Disciples who make disciples, and that's what we're going to look at. 
in these last five verses of Matthew 28. And in this commencement, really, Jesus is giving a mission, the mission that these disciples are going to have now. And it's the same mission that's true of our church. So we're going to observe this commencement, and we're going to learn about the mission of the church. And what we see are four facets to this mission. And these four facets are going to help us understand the mission and actually carry it out. And so these are the four facets that we're going to look at. The mindset, authorization, instructions, and enablement of our mission. So let's look at the first of these. The first facet to our mission, helps us understand it, carry it out, is the mindset for our mission. As with many tasks, it matters how you carry it out. So take, for example, diving. Whenever I've tried to help my, Karen could probably do a much better job of this, but whenever I tried to teach my kids how to dive, I realized how important their mindset was. You can't just jump into the water. You have to really believe that what you're doing is right and that it's going to work. Otherwise, what happens? You don't dive. You go into the water, but it's a belly flop. Very painful belly flop. You get into the water either way. But your mindset matters because it can either be a difficult, painful process, or it can be the right way. And so as Jesus gives his church her mission, his disciples actually in this first couple verses, they illustrate both the wrong, the, the incorrect, and the correct mindset in carrying it out. So but before we look at those two verses, just remember what's happened. Jesus has just been crucified. That's what they had just observed. So for the disciples, chapter 27, they had heard about, they actually weren't there, but they they knew that Jesus had been rejected and crucified. He was buried. And now these women had come to them and said, Jesus is alive. He's been raised. And they had these instructions for them to go to Galilee where Jesus said they would see him. And Matthew doesn't tell us about the other instances where Jesus had actually appeared to these disciples because he wants to focus on this meeting here in Galilee. Because Matthew's been telling us about Jesus a certain way. He's included certain details. And so in his telling of who Jesus is, this meeting was the one that fit with his gospel. So... Matthew 28, 16 says, Now the, disi- the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Evidently, Jesus had given them specific instructions that we don't hear about, so they knew which mountain to go to. And then it says what, how they responded when they saw Jesus. It says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now that, that is strange. It's admittedly strange that Jesus' disciples were doubting him now that they're standing there seeing the risen jesus and because of that and also just consider the fact that this is not the first time they'd seen him and yet this is what matthew includes and because of that people look at the greek text they try to understand what what is going on here and they think there's a way to look at this text where the first group is the 11 disciples and then there's a second group That's really talking about these disciples that Matthew hasn't really mentioned explicitly. But if you read the text, both in the original language and in in English, the most straightforward way to read it is that the 
The subject of verse 16, the 11 disciples, is the same subject of verse 17. Now, the, the, they, the first, first part of that, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That construction seems to suggest that some of the 11 were the ones doubting. And again, that seems very strange. That some of the 11 disciples, that's the 12 disciples minus Judas, that they would doubt so how can they worship and doubt? First thing we need to remember is that, like I mentioned last week, Matthew has been building towards the first part of this, the worship. The, his, his story begins with Magi paying homage to Jesus using the same word, though they didn't understand it as the way that the disciples do here. It's kind of beginning this this movement towards where we arrive here. And then along the way, there are also those who bow low to Jesus. They use the same word. They're not really worshiping Jesus, but they're pleading with Jesus for help because they recognize he's the one who they can go to. They don't realize that they're doing better than they know. They, they are bowing to one who isn't just any king. They're bowing to one who isn't just any miracle worker. This is one who is both divine and human. But when you get to chapter 14... You see, these disciples start to understand that Jesus is not just any descendant of David. Jesus walks out on the water to them. And at that point, they worshiped him and they said, truly, you are the son of God. They're starting to realize that Jesus isn't just a descendant of David. He's actually greater than David. He's David's Lord, like Psalm 110 says, he was greater even than the temple, Jesus said in chapter 12. And they were starting to get that. And so Matthew's been leading us to this point where we recognize that this is the right response to Jesus, to worship him. This is the right way to see Jesus as one who, is, who should be given the same honor that a person gives God. That's the conclusion we should reach at this point. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrated that he was perfectly righteous. If Jesus had sinned, if he was worthy of death in any way, he would not have been raised. But by raising him from the dead, the father demonstrates that he is perfectly righteous. The one who knew no sin had become sin for us. And now that he had given his life as a offering for sin, now that he'd borne the sin of many and poured out his life to death, God the Father had shown everyone that he was the righteous servant of Isaiah 53. The righteous one who makes the many to be righteous by his death. And so this perfectly holy one was worthy of worship because he was actually equal with the Father. Now that was something that Jesus had presented himself as and the religious leaders thought it was blasphemous. They thought you shouldn't do that. And yet here's Jesus who has presented himself that way, raised to immortal life. He's, he's in, incorruptible now. So worship was the right response. But consider something else from chapter 14 in Matthew. That's the only other place in Matthew where this same word translated doubted is used. Both worship and doubted. Both found here in chapter 28 and in chapter 14. And you'll remember the story there. Jesus, again, he walks out on the water to them. Middle of a stormy lake, he's walking on water. And Peter asked the Lord to have him come out and join him. And Peter does it. 
And Jesus does that. He, he asks to join him. So Peter gets out of the water, gets out of the boat into the water. And, and at that point, he's trusting in the Lord's power. And he's walking on water. And he gets right up to Jesus. And then he gets distracted by the storm, and he begins to sink. And you remember what Jesus told him? He cries out for Jesus to save him. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, using this same word. It wasn't that Peter had no faith, but he had gotten out of the boat. And it wasn't the size of his faith, because Jesus says, you just need a mustard seed of faith to move him out. What Jesus is describing with that term, little faith, is deficient faith. His faith wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Because Peter believed in Jesus' authority. That was right. But he equally believed in the power of the storm. That was the problem. So he hesitated. So here's the reality. You can both know and believe what is true about Jesus, and also be wrong in your belief at the same time. You can believe the truth about him, believe in his authority, and you can also believe equally in other things going on that are in competition with Jesus' authority. And so you don't follow him as you should. You hesitate because you're looking at two things. That's the sense of doubt here. They're not doubting that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's really raised from the dead. He's there before him. They, they don't doubt that. They see that. But now they're trying to figure out what this means for them. I mean, Jesus had, after all, been crucified. I mean, the leaders and the Romans, they'd gotten a hold of Jesus, and they'd crucified him. So, yeah, Jesus has resurrection life, but what about them? What was going to happen to them? That's what's going through their mind. And that's the wrong mindset. That's not the kind of mindset we need in order to carry out the mission that Jesus mentions here. We need to do that with reverence. We need to be focused on Christ. We need to bow ourselves before Jesus. We need to to be those who see Jesus' greatness, to see his authority, and in awe we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, and that's the kind of mindset that allows us to do whatever he asks us to do. But this kind of hesitation is when we start thinking about ourselves. What's going to happen to us? That becomes more important. And when that happens, you're not going to dive into this mission. You're going to belly flop. You're going to get into it. You're going to do it, but it's not going to be the way that Jesus intended us to get into it. So worship is the right mindset, not hesitation. That's the first facet to this mission, the right mindset. So the second that helps us understand our mission is this, the authorization for our mission. And we see that in verse 18. I'm sure you've been somewhere that required a certain authorization to be in that place. You know, you need a press pass if you're going to be at a press conference after a game. You need a backstage pass if you're going to be able to get backstage. More relevant to us, you have to have a certain level of security clearance to be certain places and know certain things at right path. Or, like I mentioned from the start, you have to have a certain degree if you're going to be authorized to teach at a college or university. There are some things that require an authorization. And so Jesus actually gives his authorization in verse 18 when he says, 
that he came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Jesus had already demonstrated authority in the book of Matthew. Jesus taught with authority, the authority of the king of God's kingdom. Saw that early on with this Sermon on the Mount, where he told people the authorized, true intentions of God's law. He spoke with authority about what the law means. He also told people what it was that really determines entrance into the kingdom. And even at the end of that sermon, he said he was the one who determines who gets in and who does not. And the people recognized, after that sermon, they recognized that he's one who teaches with authority. And then Jesus also demonstrated his authority in chapters 8 and 9 by the mighty acts that he did. And the people, again, recognized his authority when he did it. So you have the centurion who recognized that Jesus had the same kind of authority that he had with soldiers. Only Jesus had that authority over sickness. And then the people, they saw Jesus' authority to determine who gets in by his forgiveness of sin, which Dan preached on recently. Showed that when he healed the paralytic. And again, the people recognized Jesus' authority in Matthew 9, 8. And then in chapter 11, Jesus talked about this special relationship that only he shared with the Father. So he's, Matthew's showing this authority. He says in, in verse 27 of chapter 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. The Jewish leaders didn't recognize this authority. You remember when he comes in in chapter 21 and he, he cleansed the temple. And they said, by what authority do you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? And because they'd already made up their decision about him, Jesus didn't tell them that authority. But this subject of authority is one of Matthew's key themes throughout the book. He's been demonstrating Jesus does have this authority. And now that he's raised from the dead to new resurrected life, he says all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And he means given to him by his father. Now, if he already demonstrated that authority, what is he talking about here? Well, Jesus is the king who has the authority, but he's only been demonstrating that authority in Israel for God's people. And something has changed. God's old covenant people had officially rejected their king in chapter 27. It was the chief priests and the elders, the ones that the old covenant established as their authorities. They led the people in rejecting their king. In verse 25 of that chapter, Matthew specifically referred to them as the people. Throughout the rest of the places, he's calling them the crowd. But at this point, he says the people, as in the people of Israel, they accepted the blame. They said, his blood be on us and on our children. So Jesus was rejected and crucified, but now he's risen. And what did he tell the Jewish leaders in chapter 26? He warned them. You're going to be looking at me as David's Lord. From Psalm 110, seated at the right hand of power and as the triumphant son of man from Daniel 7, coming on the clouds of heaven. He was going to be ascending to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand, to take up his reign in heaven. So part of that prophecy in Daniel 7 would already be coming true. 
The kingdom would be given by the Ancient of Days to the one who comes with the clouds, comes before him at his ascension. Now, one day he is going to come and finish the job. But part of this is fulfilled now. And so, with his rejection and with Israel's rejection of this good news, the kingdom now spreads, or the, the good news of the kingdom spreads to the Gentiles. Something Paul says in chapter 11 of Romans. And Jesus had said, this is how the kingdom's going to grow. It's not like you think. He said in chapter 13, it's going to be like a mustard seed. The smallest garden seed is going to slowly grow and become the largest garden plant. It's going to be like leaven. It starts out small, but eventually permeates the entire lump. And Jesus said in chapter 24 that once the good news of the kingdom had spread throughout the whole earth, the whole world, to all nations, then the end would come. Then he would return, and he would establish his kingdom in the fullest sense on earth. So now that he's raised from the dead, Jesus said, this this authority that you've seen, this authority that you've observed during my earthly ministry, that authority is over all the earth. In fact, it's over all creation, the whole universe, in heaven and on earth. And this is God's authority that he now wields. So who is God the Father going to share this authority with? Nobody except one who is also divine. So when you think about their hesitation, their doubt, this cures it. This should cure it. This is the authorization that they need to do this job. The universal authorization of Jesus is why this is a global mission. So if somebody asks a missionary, what gives you the right to go to this primitive tribe that's been preserved from all these outside influences? What gives you the right to do that? Jesus does. Who just so happens to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Somebody comes up to you and says, what gives you the right? Who gives you the right to tell me that I'm a sinner in need of salvation? You know the answer now. Jesus gives us the authorization to share this good news, which does begin with bad news. Don't don't just share the bad news. But he gives us the authorization to do that. So what did he give us authorization to do? That's the third facet of our mission. Verse 19, first part of verse 20, give give us the instructions for our mission. Now, despite the very clear instructions here, many Christians still don't understand what we're supposed to be doing. They use the same words found here, but they really don't seem like they understand what they're saying or what they mean. It reminds me of a scene from Seinfeld where Jerry goes with Elaine to pick up this car that he's made a reservation for. So he walks up to this woman at the counter who says, you know, can I help you? What's your name? Jerry says, Seinfeld, I'm here. I made a reservation for a midsize. And then he cracks a joke like Jerry does. So she's unfazed by the joke and she just starts typing on her computer and says, okay, let me see here. And then after a little pause, she says, I'm sorry, we... We have no midsize available at the moment. That prompts Jerry to say, I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? She then responds, yes, we have your reservation. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. And now Jerry's exasperated, and he says, but the reservation keeps the car. And that's why you have the reservation. 
So the, the woman then brusquely responds, I know why we have reservations. And Jerry responds, I don't think you do. If you did, I'd have a car. See, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of a reservation, the holding of it. Anybody can just take them. So Jesus describes here two aspects of making a disciple, baptizing and teaching. But if you talk to people, it's like they only know the first part of it. It's like, Jerry, I'm questioning, do you really know what you're talking about? Do you really know what you're supposed to be doing? First of all, what you can see is Jesus begins with that word, therefore. So these instructions that he gives, they're based on the authorization that he demonstrated in the previous verse. Because Jesus has this universal authority, he now gives these instructions. And he summarizes them as, go and make disciples of all nations. So the key to understand this begins with understanding what Jesus meant by a disciple. A lot of people today seem to be able to replace disciple with convert. And basically, they're, they're focusing on the initial act of becoming a disciple. When they think of a disciple, they only think of that initial act. <clears throat> so they'll emphasize having a time in your life when you made a decision. And that's all they think about. Now, I've, I've repeatedly said this. The Bible never actually talks that way. Not once. You never hear the Bible or anyone in the Bible tell someone to ask Jesus into their heart. You never hear the Bible actually ever tell someone to pray to receive Christ. So we should think about what are we supposed to be doing? What is Jesus after here? What he's after, he, he calls a disciple. And how has he shown what a disciple is in Matthew? It's very easy to say, okay, I'm going to take this, rip it out of context, and, and go look in other passages to figure out what it means to make a disciple. But this is the conclusion to the book of Matthew. And the way this conclusion reads, it is finishing up, completing these different themes found throughout Matthew. So we should look at Matthew to figure out what Jesus means by making a disciple. What is a disciple according to Matthew? Well, we already talked about the context that in the Jesus' day, a disciple was someone who had a relationship with a teacher, a rabbi. They were a learner. But again, Jesus is not just an ordinary rabbi. He's not just giving his own ideas about what the law means and how you should obey it. Jesus is the authoritative king, the one who, unlike other rabbis, is not telling you how you can be ready for the kingdom when it comes in the way that they are, as being doing the righteous things that will grant you access to the kingdom. The first step in becoming Jesus' disciple was to learn that it was impossible for you to enter the kingdom. First step is to realize you don't belong in the kingdom. Jesus demonstrates the kind of righteousness found in the kingdom. That kind of righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees. Jesus described it in Matthew 5, 48 as being perfect as your father is perfect. That's the righteousness of the kingdom. And if you don't have that righteousness, you don't belong in the kingdom. 
So the first step to becoming a disciple is to recognize you have no business being a part of the kingdom. But Jesus, he is the king of the kingdom. He's the only one who grants access to the kingdom. And he's the one who can say who gets to enter and who doesn't. And so you believe that about Jesus. You believe he's the king. You believe he's the Messiah. You believe that he's the one who can provide forgiveness. He's the one who is going to give his life as a ransom. That's the means by which you enter the kingdom. So being a disciple, it's not just about having a relationship with a rabbi like it was in the the first century. It involves being completely committed and committing yourself to Jesus. Having an allegiance to Jesus that is greater than any allegiance that you have to anyone else. Jesus said that if you love father or mother or brother and sister more than him, you were not worthy of him. In other words, you could not be his disciple. He tells any disciple, any would-be disciple, this is how you need to be my disciple. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Being a disciple of Jesus It means recognizing that he's the Christ, recognizing who he is, the son of the living God, and then denying your allegiance to yourself, denying your your own ambitions, denying your own plans for yourself and your life. And you're going to follow Jesus. You're going to listen to him because you believe he's your king. You believe that he's the king who was rejected by the world, crucified. And you're willing to follow him, the one who was crucified. So you're not just learning about a way to live. You're not even really just learning about Jesus. A disciple is somebody who learns Jesus. Doesn't just learn about Jesus, they learn Jesus. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4.20. And again, becoming a disciple, according to Matthew's gospel, a disciple is one who turns their back You turn your back on your sin. You turn your back on your plans, your ambitions, your your direction to embrace Jesus as your king, as your savior, to learn him, to recognize that in him there is forgiveness of sin. In him there is the way that I ought to live. And you then really learn him. You begin this path of becoming like him. That's the kind of commitment. That's the kind of decision involved in being a disciple. It is not a close your eyes, bow your head, raise your hand, repeat this prayer kind of decision. Which again, let me reiterate, is never found in the Bible. That is not the commitment Christ calls you to. He calls you to turn your back on your sin and really believe in him. Believe that he's the king. Believe that he's the one who died to rescue you from your sin. Not to just give you a better life in heaven someday. To rescue you from your sin. And if you believe that, you do what Jesus said. You deny yourself and you follow him. That is the only response to be saved. That's the only true faith. That's what Jesus calls us to in this gospel. Now, the way that he speaks here, Jesus, he gives this authorization to make disciples of all nations. 
So, again, in Matthew, there's this theme of inclusion. So, from the very beginning, Matthew mentions that Jesus is not just the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12.3? That in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when that gets repeated in Genesis, the Greek translation of, of those different repetitions there are exactly like what's found here. All nations would be blessed. So, he begins chapter 1 mentioning Abraham, and then he, he continues to talk about these outsiders that get included in the genealogy. So Matthew, unlike any other genealogy at the time, mentions some of the moms, not all of them. In fact, the only ones he mentions are outsiders. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. He even mentions Uriah, who doesn't even belong. He's Solomon's mom's former husband. But he's an outsider. He's a Hittite. So you have this theme. And then you have the Magi. Outsiders come and worship or bow, bend their knee to Jesus. Then you have in chapter 8 a Roman centurion whose response of faith, Jesus says, that, that's different than everybody else in Israel. That's a better response. And in that context, Jesus talks about people coming from east and west to displace the sons of the kingdom who are rejecting him. And fast forward to chapter 15 and the Canaanite woman there who again demonstrates faith in ways that the insiders were not doing. And right after that, Jesus ends up feeding 4,000 plus Gentiles the same way that he fed 5,000 plus Jewish people before. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus is very clear. The mission at that time, at the time of his earthly ministry, was just to the lost sheep of Israel. In fact, in, in chapter 10 and verse 5, he told his disciples not to go to the Gentiles. Really the opposite of this. But that restriction has now been removed. So even in chapter 10, Jesus had hinted that it would be. Because even there, he told his disciples that one day you're going to bear witness to Gentiles. Even there in verse 18. And in chapter 12, Matthew quoted from Isaiah 42.1, which mentions proclaiming justice to the Gentiles. That was part of what Jesus' mission was. So this was not plan B. This was not, oh, well, the first plan was to go to his people, and then that failed, and now he's going to. That was in Matthew, and in, in the context of this story, it is not plan B. It is a theme that reaches now its conclusion, its fulfillment here. Now that Jesus has been rejected by his people, the Gentiles are included. They do not replace the Jewish people. One, there are Jewish people as his disciples here. But two, Jesus gives hope that in the end, the nation will once again look to him, be grafted back in when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is the mission to all nations. He mentions two aspects of this mission in verses 19 and 20. The main verb here is make disciples. And then you have three participles. And so don't roll your eyes and, and, and lose touch here. This is the only way I know to talk about this. They're, they're participles, okay? In Greek, the, the word go sounds like a command here, but it's just a participle. And then you have two that follow, baptizing and teaching, which actually are participles in English too. But 
The point is that the main verb is make disciples, and these other verbs are connected to it in some way. So the word go is almost like a, it's not a helping verb, but it's kind of like that in the sense that Jesus is commissioning them to make disciples of all nations, which naturally requires you to go and do that. You can't make disciples of all nations if you stay in the group always and only. So he's just naturally saying you need to go and make disciples of all nations. And then the two that follow explain more what he means. This is how you're going to make these disciples and continue to make them. You're going to proclaim the good news. But once a person has responded to that good news, two things need to happen to them. They must be baptized and taught. Now, why? Why were they baptized? Well, in Jesus' day, people would carry out this ritual bath where it was part of a way of preparing for some holy act. Say you had become unclean. You touched a dead animal, or you had actually been at a funeral, and you had to touch a dead body, and you had to go through this process of becoming clean. Part of the end of that process was going to a mikvah, which is like our baptistry. And you would go down the steps into this water in the mikvah, down the right side of the steps, I think, one of the sides, and go into the water, immerse in the water, and then come out the other side. It was the last part of being clean. Now, it was also used, this process was also used more and more in Jesus' day for somebody who was a Gentile and was converting to Judaism. And so Jesus takes this ritual and he uses it to picture a person's faith and commitment to him when they become his disciple. The person's turning their their life on their, their, or turning their back on their old way of life. They're, They're becoming a new person and they're going through this process where they identify with Jesus. They are going to identify with him by going down into this water and coming back out. And now that Jesus has been, has been crucified and raised, we understand that we're identifying with this one who has gone down into the grave and come out victoriously. We identify with him in that way and through baptism. Now, notice how they identify with him. What Jesus says here, they're baptized In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. They're publicly acknowledging the the authority of this singular name that's been applied to three persons. They're pledging publicly their allegiance and submission to the triune God. Some people look at what Jesus says here and they say, well, Jesus in his earthly life would have never said this. It's just too early. The idea of the Trinity comes much later. That's not true. But even in this book, if you just go back to chapter 3, you have a voice from heaven, which is the Father, when Jesus himself is baptized, say that Jesus is his Son, and who comes down on him but the Spirit. You have a Trinitarian reality at Jesus' baptism. So it's only fitting that when Jesus now commissions his disciples to do this baptism that, again, you see this Trinitarian language. And then you could look back at at chapter 11 when Jesus spoke specifically, not of himself as the Son of God or as the Son of Man, but specifically as the Son who has a special relationship with the Father. And then throughout the book of Matthew, from the beginning to the end, he is carrying out his ministry in the power of the Spirit. So this is completely consistent with Matthew. There is no historical reason why Jesus could not have said this other than you don't believe in the Trinity. If the Trinity is true, and Jesus was aware of it, which he was, he could say this and did say this. 
So it's through this identification with Jesus and with God the Father, Son, and Spirit, through this baptism, they're identifying with, with Jesus and not only that, but with what Jesus has been doing. They're identifying with this people. In Acts, it talks about being baptized and being brought into, I can't remember the right exact wording, uh, baptized and joining or being a part of the, the, the church at that point. So the disciples are, are also joining with, these new disciples are joining with the other disciples where they can be taught. Again, they're not just learning about Jesus. They're learning Jesus committed to following his instructions. So it makes sense that if you are saying, I am publicly acknowledging my allegiance to Jesus alone, that the next thing you do is then to be taught. If you're a learner, if you're saying, I'm going to be a learner of the Messiah, then you learn. So that's why it naturally follows that they teach. They must be taught to observe all that he commanded, which is obviously not just a quick class or a seminar. This is a lifelong process. Jesus' instruction addresses every aspect of our life. And there are many different things that we, we know in life, different occupations that require what? Conter- continuing education credits, right? Or something along those lines. You need to continue to learn. Why? Because that's the way that we work as humans. So the education, even if you say, oh, I've already heard that. This is a continuing process that we learn and are continually reinforced with what it means to follow Jesus and be like him, to learn him. So, Jesus describes this in chapter 13. He describes what he was doing when he was making disciples. In fact, the only other place where this word translated make disciples here is used in Matthew in a similar way is in chapter 13 where Jesus says he's making his disciples scribes who could take from the treasure of instruction that he was giving them both what is old and what is new. And they could use that to then teach others. So what does he mean by old and new there? He's talking about the fact that Jesus, he has not abolished the old covenant teachings. He's not abolished the old Testament. He's demonstrated how the old Testament fits with him. And so what you learn in the church comes from both the old covenant teaching and the new covenant revelation that Jesus gives. You learn from both, which is why we study both parts of the Bible. Christians, those who believe in Jesus, Don't just study the New Testament. We study the Old Testament and why we study every part of the book. That's why we're finishing Matthew today. We do take breaks, but we eventually get through the book. We do that because this is how you get through everything Jesus has commanded. Not by picking and choosing what we'd like to talk about, but actually going through all of his instructions. Now again, you look at this, you, you hear this, and it's very easy to see this. Once you go through it and look at it, it's very easy to see this. And yet, it does seem to me that there are people who do not know what they're supposed to be doing. When I hear pastors at the various conventions, unfortunately, this is very true in Southern Baptist circles. You hear pa- ba- pastors trying to evaluate whether or not they're doing what Jesus has said. And what do they focus on? Only. 
baptism. That's it. So can you imagine how Jesus would respond to that pastor? I imagine Jesus talking with this pastor, coming up to him, and the pastor saying, can I help you? And Jesus says, yes, I'm here to see the disciple that you made last month. And the pastor starts typing on his computer. Let me see here. Oh, I'm sorry, that person isn't coming to our church anymore. And then you can imagine Jesus saying, I don't understand, you just baptized them, and you're not teaching them? And the pastor would say, well, you know, we were able to get them to make a decision, but we couldn't keep them here. Jesus might just respond, but a disciple, the disciple had committed to me and to joining with you when they were baptized. That's why you baptized them. And I could picture a pastor saying, I know why we baptized them. And I think Jesus would say, I don't think you do. Because if you did, you'd be teaching them. See, you know how to start making a disciple, but you don't know how to keep making a disciple. And that is a very important part of making disciples. The keeping of them. Anybody can just put them in water. Now, the question is, well, how do we do this? Because that is hard. How are we supposed to go about this? How are we supposed to accomplish this task? Well, Jesus shared in the, the last facet to this mission how we do it. The enablement at the last part of verse 20. The enablement for our mission, he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look, if it's just up to us to get this done, we could not carry out these instructions. We couldn't do it. We would not accomplish the task. If it was just this human enterprise, we've been authorized, sure, okay, we've been authorized, we might have the right mindset, but if Jesus isn't with us, it cannot happen. And what, what happens is we often fail with this mission because we start to think about it as though it is just a human enterprise. And so instead of being faithful and trying to pay attention to what Jesus actually says, we try to figure out what's the best way to approach this task. How, is, how can we actually accomplish what we want to do? And we sometimes will tweak the message because, you know, it's really what Jesus actually says about being a disciple is hard. So if you really want people to decide to become a disciple, well, you should probably leave that out. Leave out the hard parts. Or we tweak the goal. Because, you know, if you, you have a goal, you need something that's attainable, right? Key to a goal, a good goal, is to have something that's attainable. And you don't have control over so many factors, but you can get somebody to make a profession. If you don't believe that, I can point you in the direction of a lot of instructions on how to get people to make a profession. It's a lot easier than you think. And you can get people to be baptized. But you can't actually get someone to willingly, volitionally decide, I want to be and be committed to and want to be committed to Jesus in a way that's a true and genuine disciple. You can't do that. But if you want some measuring device to say, oh, I'm doing my job, then what you do is, well, you cut back on the goal, the actual goal, which is why you have so many people that would evaluate whether or not we're doing the task by how many baptisms they've had. Because that's an attainable goal from a human standpoint. All authority was given to Jesus so we can make disciples of all nations who we would then train in all his commands, but only because he would be with us all the days 
It's what the actual Greek says. All the days up to the end of the age. So the reason we can carry out this mission is because the same one who has all authority in heaven and on earth is with us. The one who cleansed lepers, healed the sick, cast out demons, calmed the storm, fed 5,000 plus and 4,000 plus, walked on a stormy lake, raised the dead, forgave sin, even died and rose again. That's the one who's with us. With humans, it's impossible. It would be easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than to actually make someone a disciple. But with God, all things are possible. So this mission really is mission impossible if you go about it in this human way. It is. It's absolutely impossible. You say, you can't do that. You're right. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, they perform the miracle. Our job is to be faithful. To do what we're authorized to do. Because we're enabled to do it by Jesus' presence with us. During this time between his ascension and his return, he is going to be with us. We won't see him. But he is here. Enabling us to do this task. And he's going to do that until he returns and we see him again. So, until then, let's continue the mission that Jesus, Jesus started at his disciples' commencement. Let's do it with a mindset that worships, knowing that we're authorized to do it, knowing that we were instructed to do it, knowing how we were instructed to do it, and knowing that Jesus will be with us to the very end. Join me in prayer. Father, I pray that even as we hear this message, we hear what it means to be a disciple. Pray that anyone here that is trusting in some sort of a cheap grace, someone who really believes that it was just a matter of a process that they went through. They prayed the prayer. They walked the aisle. They got baptized. Whatever it is that they identify as the thing that secures for them heaven. That you would convince them that it's not a thing. That they do. It's Jesus. You sent your son for our salvation, and it is in him alone, not in anything that they do to secure it for themselves. And they recognize what it means to believe in Jesus, that it is not some mere decision that they made at some point in their life. That it is faith in the one who is the Christ, your son, who came and died and rose again. 
that they would see that belief in him, in that person, means that they will gladly turn from their sin, turn from their own ambitions, turn from their own allegiance to themselves. Because it's worth it to follow Jesus. And for us, fathers, we recognize that though we, we do that, we have done that, we continue to turn from our sin, to follow Jesus. That we would keep coming back to the simplicity of what it means to be a disciple. That we would recognize continually and meditate on the truth of who Jesus is and that we would continue in our commitment to learn him to be his disciple the way that he describes it that we would be like him not in our own strength not in trying really hard but because you have rescued us through his work and by means of your spirit You are making us more and more like him from one degree of glory to the next. And help us to be encouraged in that as we then share this with others. Pray that you would impress on us the responsibility of making disciples. Going and making disciples. Sharing our faith with the people around us. And then those who respond, that we would bring them in and that they would be able to publicly declare their faith in Jesus through baptism and join with us as we, we teach everything your son commanded us, week in and week out. Grant us a renewed zeal to do that. And if you would call any anyone here to, to be sent out to the nations. We, we, would, we would rejoice greatly in that. We rely on you completely to be able to, to do this mission. We ask for your strength. We ask for your spirit to, to be the one who mobilizes us and gives us the power to do it. Amen.